is The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1 and you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at BookshowRTE. Later tonight, we'll be speaking to Sally Rooney about her debut novel, Conversations with Friends, and we'll be telling you more about our Dear Character competition and we'll be recording that show in front of an audience. More details later. Now, Robert Webb is most famous for his character Jez from Channel 4's longest-running comedy, Peep Show, with David Mitchell. It was a stylistically radical TV show showing life from the point of view of two men. And if that wasn't radical enough, now Webb is overhauling what it might mean to be a man. His memoir, How Not to Be a Boy, unpicks what it is to be masculine and feminine, the stereotypical roles we play, expectations, or as he puts it in the book, that we come preloaded with a steam tanker of gender manure from the last century. Robert Webb joins me here now on The Book Show. Robert, I'm really curious. People probably think of Peep Show as quite a blokey show. So I'm curious, where did your feminist awakening come from? (laughs) <laughs> I'm still waiting. It could be any minute now. I'm still quite shy of calling myself a feminist because it's uh, such a divisive word and also because it just feels too easy to put on that T-shirt. I'm not sure that I've quite earned it. But I suppose my wife, Abby, has been an, an influence. I mean, it, it felt like, you know, a long time ago I was writing sort of anti-sexist comedy sketches. But that's that's a very separate thing from actually living with someone and really, really seeing them as fully equal and fully human. I mean, human like a human, not human like a sort of fascinating dolphin. There's a difference there. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, over the last 10 years, I think I've, I've probably got a bit more woke. Is that the expression the young so. people use? I think the woke. kids are saying that. Yeah. Okay. I remember that great article that you wrote about it, which was the start of it. And I wondered why did you decide to write a book after that article because did you feel you had a lot more to say and obviously yeah, it, it felt like I, I you know I had a good story to tell a sort of mixture of very typical things and slightly unusual things uh, so the typical things you know like teen angst in the book which is played mainly for laughs you know why won't these girls go out with me even though what's wrong with my pleated jeans what's wrong with my red and grey ski jacket and my white leather tie that I wore to parties uh, and why do these girls lack the basic imagination to want to get off with me all very normal but then there are some slightly unusual things I mean worse things happen to people all the time but it's unusual to lose your mum when you're a teenager what I do for a living is unusual it's not normal to be on the radio I'm sure you'd agree I do so there's a mixture there but I always had this sort of um, preoccupation with uh, gender and masculinity because when I was growing up I found the sort of rules for being a boy a bit of a tight fit they're all supposed to be into maths and football and they're all supposed to be cheeky and cajoling and disruptive and I was almost completely mute you know whenever I went to a friend's birthday party there'd always be a moment where the mum was cleaning away what was left of the jelly and going oh I wish they were all like you Robert and you know I, I got almost indignant if I didn't get this compliment at some point but it wasn't you know I was also uneasy because I knew I wasn't supposed to be quiet. When you talk about your dad in the book and as he's portrayed in the book that he wasn't great at times and that mm. he, he drank and he sort of cheated on your mom and you know there's a sense that he couldn't talk to you and your brothers about feelings and that yeah. kind of stuff but also you're very clear in the book also that that kind of conditioning and the the way that men are told to act were a huge part of his behaviour yeah 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 I mean he wasn't at his best when he had a, a young family he wasn't really doing all that so much that was out of the ordinary for that 
time and place, I hate to say it, but, you know, I mean, we're talking about the 70s where uh, we still had corporal punishment in primary schools. You could still come at a nine-year-old with a stick and still keep your job as a teacher, and that was all fine. So, you know, he wasn't at his best, but I, I sort of had to include that because it's, it's sort of where the story starts. I was very frightened of him. Uh, my mother divorced him when I was five. Later in the book, I, I hope that I'm as generous and fair to him as I possibly can be. There are lots of things about Paul to admire. There's a lovely moment when you you graduate from Cambridge, and he's he's almost quite choked up. And yeah, yeah. no, he says no, he says um, you know he'd gone uncharacteristically quiet for a while, and he said, um, "I'm proud of you, son. I, I know that you you'd rather your mother was here, um, but I'm proud of you anyway." And that's where I sort of, you know, I'd love to say that that's where I forgave him, but that's certainly where I began to forgive him. It was a journey. <laughs> Has part of that journey being and writing this book, having two daughters, is that a big factor as well? Yes, it must be. Abby and I, my wife and I, like to think that if we'd had two boys, we'd be taking the same approach, which is that it's not like we've banned them from the colour pink, obviously, or stopped them dressing up as princesses if they want to. Of course not. But um, we've also made sure that there's plenty of Lego lying around and they build spaceships and they they like uh, dancing, but they also both do after-school karate. And, you know, we'd like to think that if we'd had boys, then we'd take the same approach and just make it all available to them I mean you know gender neutral parenting is almost completely impossible it's like gardening in a gale you know they're going to get stuff from everywhere from their you know their grandmother's going to turn up and make 16 comments about their appearance in a way that she she certainly wouldn't do if they were boys but and they get it from school and they get it from their friends and and of course the culture and tv and 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 everything but you know you can you you can try and do your bit because I just have a, a bee in my bonnet about the way that very small children are told what their personality is like and what their roles in life are likely to be according to the accident of their chromosomes and I think that's crazy. It's obviously going to be very difficult to sit down with kids and go right let's talk about the patriarchy and how to deconstruct <laughs> it but you use something that you call the trick so what's the trick? Well that sort of came out by accident it was um, I think Abby and uh, our oldest daughter Esme when Ezzy was about five they were looking at pictures of handbags and Abigail not one to hold back with complicated words when she's talking to the children mentioned the patriarchy it's that kind of family and um, this came back as the patriarchy and that turned into the trick and there was one time when Ez had a, a non-uniform day coming up and she said mummy if I go as Spider-Man and not as a princess will I get laughed at and Abby said well people might laugh and what will you say if they do and as he said, shall I tell them they're laughing because of the trick that makes boys sad and girls get rubbish jobs? And Ari said, yes, I think that would be a very good answer. That's some good parenting right there. Well, um, yeah, that's her parenting, not mine. I was, I was away working. <laughs> the book, to me, seems very, very timely because there's a lot of conversations, particularly with what's been going on in the US around toxic masculinity mm. and the treatment of women online. Are you optimistic that people can be taught to be respectful, to ignore gender and to embrace equality? Or is that delusional? I'm not optimistic, no. I mean, I, I don't I don't have any sense of the inevitability of human progress. If anything, things just seem to be going backwards from that point of view, from a, you know, let's say, let's use the word progressive, from that point of view, it it's a grim old time. I don't, I avoid the, the phrase toxic masculinity in the, in the book. It sort of implies there's a good kind. I'm not, I'm not down on men. I think men can be wonderful. Uh, you know, I think we're all farty humans. We've, you know, we've all got wonky breasts and asymmetrical testicles and birthmarks in the shape of Guernsey and we're all that's how it feels to me but masculinity itself I mean the stuff that you see being busily performed on The Apprentice since you mentioned Trump 
you know that need to dominate other men um the the weaselly interest in hierarchy the sort of the confusion between inflexibility and strength all of that has nothing to do with the things that i admire in men that i know my friends the the things that i admire about them you know we're talking about the the gentle dads and the reliable partners and the men that you catch in random acts of kindness these to me are the grown-ups uh, the people who have outgrown gender there's a danger that this all sounds very sanctimonious and priggish but a couple of the blokes i've got in mind are comedy writers and two of the funniest men you'll ever meet and the you know, it doesn't. I'm not out to ruin everyone's fun. <laughs> um, speaking of funny men, you obviously people will know you from Peep Show, but you and David Mitchell have been recently reunited um, yes. on television on on back on Channel Four. How does it feel to be working with them again? You probably see him all the time anyway. But it's great, and it, yeah. it, one of the reasons it's great is because I hardly ever see him uh, these days. I mean, you know, when that when that relationship was at its was being really tested, it was when we were we were just together every single day. You know, to, in 2006, seven when things really, really got busy. We spent more time together than two people who are not in love uh, probably should do. So uh, it's been great to have a chance to miss him. And the point of that double act is that we're sort of greater than the sum of the parts. And we just sort of, through years of working together on stage, I sort of know what he's doing without looking at him. And, and the, there is a sort of complicity. So it's it's great. And the scripts are great. And it's written by Simon Blackwell, who wrote a few episodes of Peep Show actually uh, as well as Veep uh, was a showrunner on Veep uh, by the final series and um, like all great writers he teaches you exactly how to play the part just by putting the words in the right order well best of luck at that and best of luck at the book Robert Webb thanks for talking to us thank you How Not to Be a Boy by Robert Webb is published by Canongate now there are only two weeks left to enter our Dear Character competition where we want you to write a letter to a character from a novel the winning letter will receive a €250 Euro book token and some of our favourite letters will be read at a special episode of The Book Show which will take place in front of an audience at Dublin's Smock Alley Theatre on Saturday, October 21st at noon. The show, called A Letter to a Character, will include writers Lisa McInerney, Donal Ryan and Anne Enright, the Laureate for Irish Fiction and she'll judge from a short list of letters. And while it's free, you will need to book a ticket and you can do that at smockalley.com. On the show, we'll be looking at all aspects of characters in fiction, from how to write them and if it's true they sometimes write themselves, why some are maybe more memorable than others, and how writers feel when they have to kill off a character. To give you a flavour of the type of discussion we're going to have at Smock Alley, we asked the writer Kit Duval to reflect on a character for us. She was a guest on the book show last year with her debut novel, My Name is Leon, which was full of wonderful and memorable characters. And for us tonight, she chose Bertha from Jane Eyre, Edward Rochester's first wife and possibly forever labelled the mad woman in the attic. So who was she and what does Kit Duval want to say to her? Now, this is a woman he found in the Caribbean when he was a young man. The inference is that she's Creole, because she's from Jamaica. And all through the novel, we have this menacing madwoman locked in the attic, and her crime being that she's supposedly mad and that she was passed off to Edward Rochester before he could really work out what was wrong with her. But actually, what was wrong with her is that she was part black. That was her crime. She was passed off to Edward Rochester and had he known how mad she was and perhaps that she had a lick of the tar brush in her, he would have run a mile. 
So he brings her back to England, locks her in the attic and goes about wooing the governess, Jane Eyre. The novel is told from Jane's point of view. She loves this man, he's a bit gruff. There's this secretive mad woman that ultimately Jane Eyre meets and she's very disturbed. But I've always felt sorry for the woman in the attic. As soon as I read it, that strain of the naughty woman that might be of mixed blood, it's the absolute colonial fear that somewhere in the bloodline there might be black blood, bad black blood, as it's seen then, and it still is seen. And in the days of slavery, if you were half black, you were called a mulatto. If you were a quarter black, you were called a quadroon. And if you were an eighth black, you were called an octoroon. And octoroon women were very prized. They became the mistresses of white plantation owners. And they still have the one drop rule in America. So one drop of black blood makes you black. Doesn't matter how white skinned you are. And so I suspect that this woman in the attic, her sin was to be possibly an octoroon. And that's like I say, the theme and the thread and the vibe that runs through this novel. So if I could say anything to this woman, I would say to her, run a mile from Edward Rochester. He will bring you nothing but grief. Stay where you are in the West Indies. Enjoy the sun and the colour, but do not come to England and be locked in an attic and ultimately die. I was reflecting on this and I wrote a very short piece of flash fiction in the voice of Mrs Rochester and I'd like to read it to you. I am Mrs Rochester, and I know all the colours of love. I look down from my window, Edward, and I see you with that milk-faced girl, see your green eyes slip around her young waist, see you trying to keep your neck straight when she walks past trying to fool yourself like you fooled me. I see you. I hear her round heels on the hard, cold floor under my room, and I wonder about your nights. Does she play the piano for you, Edward? Does she dance? Does she make you laugh? Does she love you? Remember me, Edward. Remember our climb up Spanish Hill, hard, hard, until your white shirt stuck to your white skin and my high yellow dress to mine. We basted ourselves under the red, red sun and then I dived down into the blue, blue sea and took too long to come up. You were worried then. You shouted my name and it sounded sweet on your tongue. Remember the cool shade of the tamarind tree, Edward? Remember the long hours of the purple night when you whispered and said I was wild and I said yes. I lived life like a man, you said, and I said yes. You said your love for me was intoxicating, consuming, never-ending, and yes, I said, and yes, and yes, and yes. And then you brought me here 
where the grey house sits on the grey hill, stone upon stone, high as the grey clouds in the grey sky. The mist off those fields of yours slipped under our bedroom door and seeped into your bones, Edward, and into mine. I wait for you to climb hard, hard back to me, and I think of diving again, Edward, diving down. And thanks there to Kit Duval. Her novel, My Name is Leon, is published by Viking, and all the details, terms and conditions of our Dear Character competition can be found on the bookshow page on rte.ie. Now, Sally Rooney's debut novel, Conversations with Friends, is set in Dublin and tells the story of two Trinity College students, Bobby and Francis. Both girls are in their early 20s and are fiercely passionate about so many concerns, from the environment to sexual politics and inequality. When we first meet them, they've just ended a relationship with each other, but they remain firm friends. I met Sally Rooney recently to discuss her novel and began by asking her about the intelligent and outspoken Francis. Can she be so self-assured or is there a sense that she's not quite as strong as she appears to be? I think that's certainly true. She wants to project an image of herself as self-assured. And there's a sense in which maybe that side of herself is almost overdeveloped. And then there's a side to herself which may be slightly underdeveloped, which is like her, you know, emotional life. And I think she's trying sincerely to navigate that side of her life and is thrown into situations that maybe she's not quite ready to deal with yet, but is very anxious that everyone believes that she is, in fact, ready to deal with them. At the very start of the novel, uh, Bobby and Francis meet Melissa, who's a, a journalist and a writer, and she, her actor boyfriend, Nick. They're both in their 30s. And I think Bobby and Francis look at them and think that they live this very bourgeois and very sort of privileged life compared to being students, I guess. Maybe we could hear a short section from Conversations with Friends where Bobby and Francis have been invited to Nick and Melissa's house for dinner for the first time. I thought tonight was going to be a nightmare, but it was actually fine, he said. He sat back down at the table with me. I was conscious that I had looked at shirtless photographs of him on the internet without him knowing. And in the moment, I found this knowledge very amusing and almost wanted to tell him about it. I'm not the most dinner party person either, I said. I think you were pretty good. You were very good. You were great. He smiled at me. The doors opened and Melissa came back in, carrying her camera in both hands. She took a photograph of us, sitting at the table. Nick, holding his glass in one hand. Me, staring into the lens vacantly. Then she sat down opposite us and looked at her camera screen. Bobby came back and refilled her own wine glass without asking. She had a beatific expression on her face and I could see she was drunk. Nick watched her, but didn't say anything. And that was Sally Rooney there reading from Conversations with Friends. It's, it's very clear, even at the start, that there's a lot of tension and excitement between the four of them. So what is it, do you think, that attracts the students to Melissa and Nick and vice versa? Bobby and Francis see Nick and Melissa as living a kind of privileged kind of lifestyle. Particularly, they feel that Nick and Melissa have that kind of lifestyle without having kind of compromised their ideals. Because Melissa is a writer and Nick is an actor. They're both in the creative arts and they live with what appears to be integrity. But then they also have... Like a nice house and they can like afford you know nice food which as students looking into a future that's still defined very much by the sort of 2008 financial crisis there's a sense in which like 
that lifestyle is so aspirational. Imagine being able to have a career where you don't compromise your ideals and yet you can still kind of afford to live a nice life. What attracts Nick and Melissa to Bobby and Francis is probably kind of a similar thing in reverse. I guess maybe they feel that in a way they kind of have compromised and they see Bobby and Francis as these incredibly idealistic, sort of very passionate, radical communists who are saying no to the entire system. Whereas Nick and Melissa are like, you know, they have a mortgage and they feel so enmeshed in um, the social fabric in a way that Bobby and Francis maybe appear to be sort of free from. Obviously, no one is actually free from it. And that's something that maybe the characters come to confront in the course of the novel. But I think the attraction on both sides is initially sort of a way of rebelling against the society that they find themselves entangled in. Both Bobby and Francis are critical of the consumerist and capitalist world they live in. And I guess their childhood and teen years coincided with the economic crash of 2008. So Bobby's, we're told, comes from quite a wealthy background, but Francis doesn't. So what are their issues around wealth and how did their upbringing during the crash inform those views? That's an interesting question and probably taps into my own upbringing because I was 17 in 2008 when the crash happened. So was just starting college when it was like very clear that the economy was not in any way recovering and I was embarking on like an English degree. Bobby, as you say, comes from a relatively wealthy background and doesn't personally have the same anxieties about finance that Francis does, but still intellectually acknowledges that this is going on. But I think there might be a little bit of tension between their intellectual political alignment and in some sense their desire for a not luxurious but like stable lifestyle but then on the other hand everyone should have a stable life like I don't think it's hypocritical to want to have a fairly nice life to live you know to have a roof over your head yeah they're searching for something that at times may seem in conflict with their ideals The story is told from Francis' point of view and in one way it's told in a straightforward first person narrative and yet you also use emails and instant messenger and text messages and I'm wondering, was using those technological strands a way of allowing the reader at times to know more than some of the characters and did it allow you to be playful? That's interesting and I guess I was so immersed in Francis's perspective when I was writing it that the question of the reader knowing more than she knew didn't really come to me in the process of writing. I felt like I was sort of living the narrative as it happened to her and just kind of notating it even though obviously that's not really how the creative process works but that's what it felt like while I was doing it. I'm really interested in using sort of online forms of textuality when you look at the history of the novel the development of the novel as a form the letter was so important. I mean if you look at Austen's novel novels, letters and missed letters and letters that don't arrive on time are so important even sort of as plot devices that it seems like the novel is going to have to become more capacious to incorporate new forms of communicative textuality and I think the emails that Frances writes are probably important in the development of her voice as a writer because she is a writer and sort of develops as a writer through the book but the only writing that we ever see of hers is emails and instant messages so in a way I guess it's maybe playing with the idea that the literary voice that we use in emails is actually a form of literature, even though we don't, you know, usually think of it that way. Also, I think all those people who had their letters and diaries published, they knew they were going to get published. They weren't just like (laughs) dashing any old rubbish in. Um, The title of the book, Conversations with Friends, is, I suppose, interesting in that when it comes to certain issues in the book to do with mental health and physical health and maybe the body, why does Frances feel that she can't discuss that with the people around her family and friends? Yeah, Frances struggles with, um, well, her physical health in one big way. She suffers from sort of debilitating menstrual pain through the first half of the book and then sort of finds out the, you know, what's behind that. And I think that process of diagnosis and the process of coming to understand that pain as a sort of chronic issue in her life is 
just incredibly difficult for her and is something that's not immediately easy for her to theorize. And I feel like the, a lot of the conversations in the book come from the characters feeling like they have a sort of ability to theorize the world they live in. And they feel like they have a verbal facility, that they feel comfortable with words. And in conversation, they feel like their exchanges are sort of meaningful and that they have some control over the subjects that they're talking about. Whereas I guess when it comes to physical illness, and I think Francis is probably also struggling with mental health issues throughout the book too, it's something she doesn't feel a great amount of control over. She doesn't really understand it and to try and put it into words and exchange it somehow verbally with one of the other people in the book is immensely challenging for her. And I think uh, without giving too much away, the moment when she finally accepts that sometimes she cannot have full control over her self, her body and her life and that she still has to try and open up in some way, even if it's in a partial way and even if it's sort of giving up control, that it's still something that's important for her to do. And I think that's actually a breaking point in the book. Both Bobby and Francis, are, as we've mentioned, they're very smart, they're college educated and they're young women who've both had academic and personal encounters with what is still a very essentially patriarchal world. What do you think are some of the issues and how did these characters navigate them in the book? I am obviously very interested in gender and politics and the characters talk a lot about gender and politics. And I wanted to write about specifically characters who feel like they have some understanding, even if only a partial one, of kind of the patriarchal system. There are great novels about women kind of coming to a feminist consciousness, but I was really interested in exploring women who actually have already developed a feminist consciousness and are just trying to use it in some way to navigate this still very inequitable world. All four of the central characters, including Nick, sort of the main male presence in the book, are all quite switched on to gender theory and are all, you know, interested in living in a fairer world. And so the questions that come up aren't incipient questions of feminist ideology, like, does my personal relationship involve feminist politics? politics in some way it's more like on the assumption that every relationship is structured in some way by these politics how then do we navigate them even if we both have the best will in the world even if we've both read Judith Butler how do we actually get past these you know obstacles and I think that's something that Francis is navigating but it's also something that Nick the male character is navigating and I think he feels like what do you do with masculinity you know what <laughs> how do you answer this problem once you've read the theory and once you've come to some understanding of how gender works to assert power over women like how do you handle that as a man who wants to be a good person and like he doesn't obviously necessarily answer that question in a helpful way but that was the kind of book I was interested in writing about people who have already come to some understanding and are just trying to use that understanding in a productive way. And thanks to Sally Rooney for that. Conversations with Friends is published by Faber. Well, that's all we've time for tonight. We'll be back here on RTE Radio 1 at 7pm next Saturday night. My thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to series producer Zoe Cummins. (laughs) 